From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we ask just how high is the wall of separation between church and state when we revisit our 2012 interview with Georgetown professor Jacques Berliner-Blau. Later on the program, our producer Katie Murphy explores the difference between being lost and being curious in China. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacques Berlinerblau, professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and director of their program for Jewish Civilization. He's the author of How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Jacques Berlinerblau, welcome to Things Not Seen. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Well, you start out your book, How to Be Secular, with the problem of the definition of what secular means in the first place. So I think that's a good place for us to begin. What are some things that people think about secularism that is misinformed, and how would you, how would you define secularism? Yeah, as I say in the book, secularism is the most mangled and misunderstood ism in the American political lexicon. I think uh, the largest misconception presently is that secularism and atheism are the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that secularism and atheism don't share a lot of political ground, but they're clearly, clearly not the same thing. The second misconception might be the equation between secularism and what we might call total separationism, the idea that we can totally wall off church from state. Separationism is a type of secularism, but it's not the only type, and in the book I'm trying to explore other possibilities. Well, you you said just now that secularism is not atheism, but I think that probably a lot of people would consider, that a lot of people would consider secularism to be atheism that has been enshrined in law. Is that a misconception? Is that not the right way to think about secularism? Yeah, that's a misconception. The roots of secularism, and very few, people knew this for the longest time, but they were usually professors. Um, the roots of secularism are sunk deep in Christian political philosophy. Uh, Christian thinkers across the ages have tended to divide the world, the earth, into kind of a, a kingdom of God and an earthly kingdom, and they're both here. It's kind of complicated, but that works its way throughout the centuries through a bipartite into a bar, bipartite schema in which we think of a place for the church and a place for the state. So the roots of secularism have absolutely nothing to do with atheism. Atheism comes on the historical scene at a much later moment in, in time and space. And so if we think about uh, creating secularism as a type of political space, the politics that we're looking at actually uh, go to what I think a lot of people would understand to be the American experiment, the idea of a separation of church and state. Uh, where did that idea come from for separating church and state, and why is it valuable? Yeah, that's one of the great questions that I get uh, into in the book. Uh, the idea of separationism, as we know it, is a lot younger than we used to imagine, at least when I was in school, right? Strict separation in terms of a wall of separation between church and state, it's not actually mentioned in the Constitution. It first appears in Justice Hugo Black's famous uh, comments in the 1947 Everson decision. From 1947 forward, we've worked in our government with this idea of separation, which don't get me wrong, David, it's a good idea. The problem is that it has been collapsing for, oh, a quarter century now, and it's no longer, unfortunately, viable politically. It, its foundations have been undermined. When I go onto sites like the Huffington Post and Gawker, and I read the comments, particularly the comments that fall underneath articles that have to do with religion, one of the things that I note is that oftentimes those who would be critical of religion style themselves as the champions of rationality and that those who are religious are somehow the, dis, the, the delusional champions of irrationality. And I wonder, this tension that we have in, I guess, lowbrow public discourse on the websites, what, 
How would you critique that tension of this being an argument between rationality and irrationality among believers and non-believers? Well, you've used a great line, low-brow public discourse. And a lot of what I'm trying to get at in the book is I'm trying to write to a kind of general reading public and, and, and not get into that low-brow stuff. I deplore the equation that a person of faith is de facto some sort of irrationalist uh, mired in a delusional world full of cognitive phantoms and and make-believe uh, conceptions of the world. Um, I don't know why that has entered our lowbrow discourse to such a degree. There's a heavy scientism or pop scientism uh, in some quarters of the non-believing world that assumes if it's not scientific, it's false, and only science can save us, and only via scientific analysis can we get at anything which is truth. Um, I disagree, and one of the reasons I disagree is I'm actually a professor of literature, and I've often felt that through art, through music, through dance, through architecture, we can get to other truths as well. So you, you hit the nail on the head. It's a lowbrow way of discussing religion. I haven't quite figured out how we elevate the discourse. In the concluding chapter of your book, How to Be Secular, you rally around one particular term, and the term that you choose as the rallying cry for secularism is disestablishment. Would you take a moment and explain what disestablishment means and why it's important? Right. Um, the reason why I'm opting for disestablishment is that many secular movements have placed their hopes on separationism. And as I mentioned, separationism has endured a really bad couple of decades uh, on the United States Supreme Court and in, in the state courts as well. Disestablishment, however, is a word, at least establishment, that is actually in the Bill of Rights in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. I feel most Americans, religious or non-religious, agree they don't want to live under somebody else's establishment. And as I try to rebuild secularism, which I think is in pretty dire straits right now, uh, I wonder if we might not start there. We might not look for consensus among religious people, not religious people, who all agree a state establishment or a federal establishment uh, is a very, very bad idea. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacques Berlinerblau, professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and director of the Program for Jewish Civilization. He's the author of How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you don't want to advocate an absolute uh, separation where religion is completely excluded from the public square. And I, I think that I agree with you that that would be an impossible thing to achieve in our, in our culture right now. But what I'm hearing you saying is that instead, the place to start is not by excluding religion, but simply by saying the state can't establish one as its own. Did, have I heard that right? You got me right. It's a finesse argument. It's a complex argument. And, and quite frankly, I often get smothered by demagogues on this issue, uh, which you're clearly not doing. So I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, separationism is showing itself to be untenable. Um, one thing that I, I noted in the book is there's actually no historical precedent in the United States for complete walling off, though it's often mentioned by many secular activists as the goal. I think it's an unreasonable goal. Would I want total separation in the abstract? Um, one of the examples I looked at in the book was the Soviet Union. I devoted a chapter to it where you kind of had a, a total separation of church and state. I mean, you had a pulverization of church uh, via the separation of church and state. So, no, I, I would agree with you. I don't want a complete separation of church and state. Separation has many, many virtues. However, every now and then, you just got to let it go. Uh, symbols in public space. Uh, this cross controversy in downtown New York, the so-called World Trade Center cross. I just feel secularism has to kind of marshal its resources and understand where it can have a good fight and a fight that is about principle and where it's having a losing fight over something that is, to quote Mr. Madison, not essential, unessential differences. What that reminds me of is, is the, the strange fact that prior to the ratification of the First Amendment that you mentioned earlier, where the Establishment Clause is, is enshrined. Congress, a few days before that, uh, elected to have a chaplain and has had a chaplain, and so has the Senate uh, to this very day. So already we have this strange mixture of the American government's structural documents saying we don't want to establish a religion 
And yet uh, we've got examples within the institutions of the American government of deeply held religious convictions. And I might note that that chaplain uh, almost throughout the entire history, with just a couple of exceptions, has been a Protestant minister. Yeah, what a, what a paradox American democracy is. I mean, uh, you, you've, you've said it so well. Uh, it's something that puzzled me in the book, and I think it puzzles all historians of American religion, the degree to which we live by, by two credos, that we have this idea of non-establishment, and we did have a sort of de facto establishment of Protestant Christianity for, oh, I don't know, the first century, century and a half of this fascinating American experiment. So contradictions are good. Uh, ambiguity is good. I have no problem with that. Though trying to translate this into effective public policy, that's really the hard part for this generation of secular activists. Now, a moment ago, you mentioned this de facto establishment of Protestantism in the early century of America. And I think that if we look at the cultural landscape, evangelicals will argue that, and maybe not just evangelicals will argue, that it was the intention of the founders to actually have uh, a Protestant majority in the country and that that is the, the state that they wanted to maintain by things like the First Amendment. Not the possibility of freedom from religion, but simply not to have a particular denomination forced upon you. What do you think of that reading when you hear those sorts of interpretations? Well, I don't know if it was the intention of the founders. I don't think the founders could have imagined anything but. Uh, at the time when the religion clauses are being debated, um, what do we have in the United States? A couple of hundred Jews and a couple of thousand Catholics, and everybody else is some form of Protestant. So there's, I know you can never say negative things about the founders, but, but there is a kind of failure of vision there and a failure to imagine a United States, which is going to look very, very different. You don't see that with Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison. Fascinatingly, in a lot of their writings, especially Mr. Madison, he's really cognizant of immigration. And he's asking questions such as this one. Well, if we permit these types of establishments of religion, who will want to come to our country? I mean, that's an amazing question to be asking in the last quarter of the 18th century. But these two fellows were so forward-looking, I fear too forward-looking, um, that, that they really, they were, as I put it in the book, they were outliers. They were racing ahead of that pack of founders in terms of their really kind of penetrating insight into what America should be. So who did they foresee as wanting to come to the country if they were able to form the government the way that they envisioned? Well, I think Mr. Madison really understood that people from different countries were going to come here. Did he drill down and understand that we would have Muslim Americans coming and Sikh Americans Probably not, but he understood the abstract possibility would one day become a potentiality. Uh, and this is what makes him uh, such, a, such an astonishing kind of public thinker and public intellectual and, and a statesperson as well. I don't think many of the other founders had that kind of capacious vision of what America could become and the role that an establishment of religion would play in preventing that America from coming to fruition. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacques Berlinerblau, professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and director of the Program for Jewish Civilization. He's the author of How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is a rebroadcast of our 2012 interview with Professor Berlinerblau. We're hoping that he can come back on the show soon and talk about his more recent work. But in the meantime, we're happy to revisit this conversation about how to be secular. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're rebroadcasting an interview that we did back in 2012 with Jacques Berlinerblau of Georgetown University. We're talking about secularism and its role in American political history. Well, since we're talking about the founders and the Enlightenment in general, who is John Locke and why is he important to this discussion? Uh, the great John Locke, um, the great 17th century philosopher, uh, writes a wonderful short work called A Letter Concerning Toleration in 1689. He writes it in exile from Holland, and in many ways it's sort of the blueprint of the secular vision. Of course, he never uses the term Secular. Uh, in the book, I identify five architects of uh, American secularism. Here's an interesting thing, David. 
American secularism has really never been written about. Uh, I couldn't find a scholarly history of American secularism that kind of sequenced its genome. So as I tried to look into the problem, I was trying to figure out, well, who created this thing? As far as I can tell, and this is my first go at it, Martin Luther, of all people, uh, the founder of the, the causer of the Reformation, is a major figure, and so is John Locke. I would put Roger Williams in there as well. And one of Locke's great insights, and maybe we can start here, David, is that everyone is orthodox to himself. That's one of the great catchphrases from a letter concerning toleration. Well, and I, that's a great place to to sort of begin to dig a little bit deeper, because what we're looking at in America today is an explosion of religious diversity. And I, I guess by explosion, I don't mean that it has suddenly arrived on the scene, but it is suddenly being talked about and acknowledged in a way that maybe even a generation ago it was not being acknowledged. And it's this sudden eruption into consciousness that we have tremendous religious difference. Probably we are the most religiously diverse country on the planet, if not the most religiously diverse nation of all human history. But I think that that, uh, that, that realization is bringing some growing pains. And I think going back to some of the people like you've mentioned, John Locke and his letter on toleration, that's a good place to start. Yeah, it's a good place to start to understand that religion, God bless it, does a lot of great things. On the downside there, it often instills in the individual worshiper the sense that his or her religion is the best religion and the true religion and the correct religion. And I think what Locke understood was that's fine. Uh, one can believe that their prophet is the seal of the prophets. One can believe uh, that their revelation is the true revelation. The danger is when you try to turn that into policy. And what Locke understood in that letter is that impulse leads to social implosion. Societies combust when you permit this kind of innate human belief that my religion is the right religion to enter the apparatus of a government. And I think this is one of the starting points of that strong secular vision. Now, would you suggest that that kind of religious assurance that my way is the truth and that I suddenly have arrived at, at that which God has intended for all eternity, is that poisonous to democracy in some way? It wouldn't be, that's a good question, it wouldn't be poisonous to democracy if you had very, very firm uh, lines or walls or boundaries between religious groups and the state. It can be poisonous to democracy, especially when you have a majority uh, group that can sort of overrun or infiltrate the organs of government, and their orthodoxy just enters kind of through the back door, right? So what if you have, I don't know, 275, 300 members of one religious group in Congress, and they all happen to share these representatives, they all happen to share uh, a similar view of the ver verisimilitude and, and truth and righteousness of their religious vision. That's the danger for a democracy, and I think this is what Madison and Jefferson were trying to firewall, if you will. They were trying to create a government that really vitiated uh, that possibility. Well, you mentioned Jefferson and Madison firewalling the, uh, the structures of government against a type of religious extremism. But that was over 200 years ago. How are those firewalls faring now? Do we, need to, do we need to increase them, or are the structures that Madison and Jefferson and others put in place still robust enough to, to maintain democratic structures in the midst of religious fervor? Yeah, the structure, the firewall is being sort of extinguished. That, that's what I fear, right? There was a moment mid-century where secularists controlled one major, major institution in the government, one branch. They had control of the judicial branch, and they managed to make separationism the prevailing ideology of the federal government vis-a-vis church-state relations. Uh, what has happened in the last 25 years, and I'm surprised as to how slow secularists have been to realize this, is the judicial branch is no longer the home court, if you will, of American separationism. Uh, the thinking on separationism has changed radically. The executive branch, whether there is a Democrat or Republican uh, occupying the White House, is no longer uh, an ally of that separationist mid-century vision. And as for the legislative branch, I mean, uh, what, what more do we need to say? And that's, that's kind of representative democracy at its best. You have a lot of 
states in which people would like to see more religion in public life, and they elect representatives who promise them that that is uh, their their mandate. So the structures are strong and sturdy, but the structures have been, I don't want to say infiltrated, because there's nothing illegal about this, but the structures have been overrun by those who no longer share that sort of secular consensus that we had half a century ago when John Kennedy could speak of an America in which separation of church and state is absolute. That secular mentality, secular worldview is gone. Now what? When I teach my students in classes on American religious history, one of the questions that often comes up is a question about prayer in public schools. And the question usually is framed in such a way that the student assumes that someone just decided that they didn't like prayer in public school and therefore they wanted to remove it. And what I try and, and, and adjust in the conversation is the assumption that that's why this happened. It seems like instead that we should, we should be teaching students and teaching citizens to understand that the problem is not in some, some animus against religion. The, the problem, if they see it as a problem, comes from the very structure of America itself, the, the desire for a type of religious moderation that is holding sway in the public sphere. And so if we look at the First Amendment, the reason why public education doesn't allow prayer in schools is because that would be basically the textbook definition of an establishment of religion, using government funds to to enshrine one particular type of prayer to one particular God in a land that is obviously and factually very diverse in terms of religious belief and 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 allegiance to various types of divinity. So how do how would you suggest that we begin to change the public conversation so that students and citizens can begin to learn the real sort of place to make these arguments and the real place to be to be sort of looking at the causes of 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 these these things that they may or may not like in the public sphere. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, though, in the public schools, when you look at actual enforcement, I mean, I was just down in Texas doing some lecturing there at at Austin College in Sherman, Texas, and um, a lot of students were telling me that there was prayer in their public schools and that these moments of silences, these moments of silence, excuse me, are often used for a sort of de facto prayer session all over the South, all over the Southwest, and probably in other parts of the country. So, so that's another conundrum to add to our list of, of dilemmas. Let me, let me put it this way. Uh, a lot of what emerges as I think about the research I did on this book is sort of sobering because I feel that there's been a failure of religious moderates and religious liberals in this country to clearly articulate what they stand for and to mobilize people behind their belief. I'm not at the point of losing hope, but I am at the point of wondering why it is that after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in the late 60s, why that vacuum was created and why no leader could emerge to enter into a dialogue with Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson, why why nothing on the religious left or religious moderates, why nothing developed there to push back and argue for a different conception of how we best can get to God or understand God or venerate God. And to me, I have no answers here. Failure of leadership, um, maybe, could be. Uh, failure to articulate an interesting message. Uh, the I, I don't know. Maybe you can help me, David. I have no explanation, and quite frankly, I'm getting quite frustrated that we can't get anything out of the religious moderates and the religious progressives in this country that can effectively counter the visions of God and the visions of God's role in the United States that we've seen so effectively expressed by the Christian right. Well, one of the things that I think stands in the way of that kind of that kind of identification of a new leadership for religious moderates is that it's very easy in in the more extreme versions of religion to identify uh, a clear leader and a clear sense of a clear sense of doctrine when as soon as you get into to religious moderation you have sort of the muddy middle where you have this is the place where the progressive edge is already arguing about what leadership and doctrine should look like. So already there's going to be a hesitancy towards rallying around one particular type of one particular type of, of leader or, or doctrine. The liberal faiths by nature, and this is what I find so appealing about them, really place an emphasis on doubt, uh, on ambiguity, on 
on being quiet about one's faith, on not always being certain that one knows God's will. So that's another sort of impediment to mobilization. Here's a paradox that I was just thinking about. It wasn't in the book. To mobilize the religious moderates, and they're huge. We're talking, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 million Americans. That's a large swath of the American equation. It's sort of a paradox because you're mobilizing them to push religion out of politics. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. You're trying to get people galvanized so that they can say, we'd like less of this God talk in our presidential banter. We'd like less kind of uh, state interference in uh, public schools in terms of uh, imposing moments of prayer or whatnot. So I think part of the hard sell, and the two of us are working this out together in our discussion, is how do you mobilize people to demobilize religion in the public sphere? And it's really a paradox, and I haven't figured out how anyone can get out of it, but um, yeah, it's, it's just not working too well. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacques Berlinerblau, professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and director of the Program for Jewish Civilization. He's the author of How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Now, a moment ago, you talked about humility about one's beliefs and openness to change uh, and not being so uh, wedded to, to being right. Would you consider these to be the hallmarks of what we might call religious moderation, or are there other aspects of religious moderation that we need to put into this definition? There are definitely hallmarks. There are others. Uh, John Locke, who we were just discussing, started off his letter uh, concerning toleration by saying, toleration is the chief characteristical Christian virtue, that, that if you could boil Christianity down to a word, it would be toleration. Now, we need not agree. We need not insist that there's empirical evidence for that. But I think the liberal religious faiths uh, in Judaism, in Christianity, in, in Islam that we have in the United States, they have a lot of really interesting and subtle and intriguing ways of thinking about God. And they've just sort of emerged as political roadkill. We, we don't hear these in our public banter about the place of God in the United States. You know, Obama comes from the African-American church. He's schooled in the church, and the church places a huge emphasis on doubt. I do have to say that, and I kind of thought we'd hear more about the role of doubt in faith uh, from the Obama administration. That's not so much an accusation, but I thought his presidency might start a national discussion on how we think about God, and that maybe there's just not one particular way to think about God, and maybe we as a country can come to peace with that. And those of us who don't believe in God are not necessarily uh, uh, seditious or betraying uh, the United States, but apparently that hasn't happened yet. Well, I think part of what we're running up against when you, you have that kind of desire for a national conversation about a different way to think about God is this deep deep-seated mythos in American consciousness of the city on the hill. And that's, you know, that, that goes back to the Puritans, but then it gets picked up by Ronald Reagan in that speech from the 1980s. This notion that somehow America is God's nation and that America somehow has been chosen as a land for a holy purpose. You have a great many citizens that, that really believe that to their core, and when you begin to enter into a national conversation that would question that in some way, or that would open up the possibility of, of an atheist voice in that, or a non-zealous voice in that, I think that tends to make some, some citizens very nervous. Yeah, I mean, but the whole prophetic tradition, for example, is, is a tradition of critique. Uh, it's a critique of Israel and Judah, as you read through the major and the minor prophets. And it's funny that nobody's done, went, and figured out how to make criticism of American domestic and foreign policy, uh, a sort of legitimate form of religious discourse. Right? Now, I, by the way, I share in the idea of American exceptionalism. Uh, I've, I have enough um, relatives and friends in foreign countries that I, I really do adore the country, and it's my favorite country, and I'm happy to be an American citizen, though I don't correlate that uh, with some sort of, of divine mandate. What, what I find fascinating is this idea that the more 
pious or religious we are according to one or two ways of being religious in the United States, right? The more American we are, right? And uh, lack of religiosity equals lack of patriotism. Having a somewhat sober and muted faith is somehow less American than wearing it uh, loud and proud. And in one of the chapters there, I'm trying to undermine that way of thinking, which I think is really simplistic and and really quite hazardous to the health of the country. A moment ago, you talked about Locke's letter on toleration, and in that you, you referenced that Locke says that toleration is probably the primary Christian virtue. That, immedi- that immediately made me think of Josh McDowell, who is uh, a, a spokesperson for evangelical Christianity. He's a pastor, and he he has radio programs of his own, and one of the things that I I know that Josh McDowell has really been been hammering home for the last several years is his his vision is that Christianity is fundamentally intolerant and that that's a good thing, and so I wonder how how can those who wish to speak for a moderate form of religious faith speak to those like Josh McDowell in the public sphere? How can we have conversations with those that want to? enshrine intolerance or enshrine exclusion as a primary religious virtue. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, Pastor McDowell is a fundamentalist because that's one of the sort of sociological hallmarks of fundamentalism, the argument that on the contrary, right, toleration is not part of, of what the gospel teaches us. I don't know how we change the national conversation. Here's something I think about, and you know this as well as I, we're, we're, we're both professors. Um I'd really like to hear more from the professors. Uh, One thing I know about American scholars of religion is they're tremendously knowledgeable. Uh, They know things that nobody else knows. Uh, They do it with great scruple and honesty. And here's the final thing I know about them. No one listens to them. And I've often thought to myself, how can we get these scholars of religion, and we're here by the thousands, if not the tens of thousands in the United States, Um, to just get out there and speak to people and tell them what they know about the Gospels, tell them what they know about the Hebrew Bible, about the Koran, about the use of the Bible uh, in American politics. There's no conduit, there's no access road for them to travel down, except for shows like this one, which which are so valuable, and there's so much on NPR, by the way, that also permits these professors to speak. But I think the national conversation on religion, which shouldn't be a federally sponsored conversation, really begins when professors of religion take back this conversation and start speaking about what they know. We'll have a lot of disagreements along the way, but I think that might be one of the great catalysts Uh, excuse me, one of the great enzymes uh, in terms of breaking down a very simplistic and actually quite recent way of thinking uh, about Christianity in particular. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're rebroadcasting a 2012 interview with our guest, Georgetown professor Jacques Berliner-Blau. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacques Berliner-Blau, professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and director of the Program for Jewish Civilization. He's the author of How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Well, in your book, you refer to secularism as the least bad alternative for a religiously pluralistic society. First of all, that made me sort of want to ask you, what would be some worse alternatives than secularism for a religiously pluralistic society? And can we come up eventually with a better tagline than the least bad alternative? Because in terms of getting this into the public discourse, it seems like we need to do a little bit of PR work on that tagline. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm a bit of a pessimist. You know, I work in a school of foreign service, so you often hear the foreign policy people, usually on Iran, say, look, we only have bad options here. Here's the least bad option that, that America could pursue vis-a-vis Iran. Um, sure. Uh, uh, well, a worse alternative would be theocracy. Uh, that's for sure, right? A, a worse alternative would be, I think, going back to the uh, the beloved states' rights movement. Uh, I know I'll get a lot of email for this, but once we leave things to the demographic majority, especially around your parts and in other parts of the country, we're going to have prayer in public schools. We're going to have, I believe, personhood amendments or something like it. Um, we're going to have a lot of things that are going to make America a very, very different place. Uh, so I can't think of a better alternative to secularism, but as you clearly sensed, 
I see the limitations of the doctrine at this present point for a pluralistic society such as our own, and we must include a society that has a small but growing contingent of non-believers as well as the so-called nuns, those who are unaffiliated, I do feel secularism is is the solution at this point. If somebody's got a better idea, I'm I'm open to listening. But I do think the ideas that I that I put forward in the text are probably the, the safest and the most time-proven way uh, to to move forward. So if I'm hearing your argument correctly, and if I can sum it up for the listeners. The idea is not to eliminate religion from the public sphere, but instead to allow a kind of denatured religion that doesn't have the teeth to overtake the public sphere and turn it into a theocracy, where religion is allowed to flourish in dialogue with other religions, I guess where I say where religions are allowed to flourish in dialogue with other religions, and where the personal belief structures can be very robust and personal, personal devotion can be very, very deep, but that that deep devotion is not allowed to take over the legislature, the judicial branches, the executive branches in a way that would begin to move us away from a place of discourse to a place of univocity. Have I heard you correctly? Yeah, personal belief is untouchable. That's a, a core secular principle. People are always allowed to believe what they want to believe. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacques Berlinerblau professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and director of the Program for Jewish Civilization. He's the author of How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. The way that I'm thinking about this is that we've got uh, many, many voices in the public sphere, uh, many religious voices, and the way that, that, that we want to structure the public space is such that those voices are allowed to flourish and to talk to one another, but no one voice is allowed to have so much power or presence that it overtakes and overwhelms the structures of public space and, and makes it its own. Absolutely. We have to be very mindful of that, and that should be pretty easy given how religiously diverse the country is. There's enough diversity there. This is what Mr. Madison called multiplicity of sects to almost assure that any public conversation we have about religion is going to have a lot of differing voices. I want to emphasize that that conversation has to include non-believers. It has to include those who are religiously unaffiliated. If we're really going to have a robust conversation in this country about religion. So, no, I don't wish to exclude religion from the public sphere. I wish to exclude expressions of religion in the public sphere, which are clearly, clearly only speaking to one segment of the population. If we can ensure a way that believers and non-believers can bring their ultimate concerns into public dialogue and render those into some sort of policy form that we'd all agree upon, well, that would be just swell. That would be a utopia. I mean, that would be life everlasting, I guess, right? Uh, uh, what I'm describing is an almost impossible uh, end, end times scenario. Nevertheless, the problem that I think we have right now is we have domination by one form of religiosity in this country, and this would be a type of very, very conservative Christianity uh, that is congenial to evangelicals, fundamentalists, and traditionalist Catholics. And I think all the other forms, right, which actually have a sort of statistical majority, uh, are, are not being heard. You, you've said at several points in this conversation that we want to have a space for those who are non-believers, who are atheists, or for those who don't identify with a religious tradition. Within the culture wars of the last 20 years, there's been an attempt on the part of those with deep religious devotion to classify non-believers as just a specific subset of believers. In other words, to classify atheists as de facto religious. Do you agree with that sort of classification, or would you want to hold out a separate type of category for the atheist within this discussion or for the non-believer within this discussion that would still allow them conversational space in the public discourse, but without turning them into some sort of de facto religious entity? Right. I think you're speaking about uh, kind of footnote 11 in Turcaso Watkins that defines secular humanism as a religion. Is that what you mean, David? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah, um, Yeah. this idea that, yeah, that's a really good question. Also, sometimes you see this coming from atheists. Uh, there's a movement in the military to have atheist chaplains, right? So it works both ways, the idea that, that the types of uh, status that we 
that we uh, permit religion in, in our thinking about religion publicly, we should also permit to atheists. It's a good question. I'd like to hear from atheists on this one. I don't quite think we fully understand what, what atheists think. Um, I don't think we know atheists. I don't think we've properly studied them. Um, I would like to keep atheists as something apart from religion. I wouldn't want to subsume them as a, as a kind of subset of the religious, but what's important is they have precisely the same rights as the religious uh, when they think through uh, policy issues. Uh, atheists are going to need to find their voice. They're going to need to find their leadership. They're going to need to understand how they fit into secular movements, which don't have the same goals and, and ends as atheist movements. Uh, I, I think the future for atheism in this country could actually be uh, pretty bright. Well, Jacques Berlinerblau, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dave. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau, who's professor and director of the program in Jewish Civilization at Georgetown University. He received his first doctorate in ancient Near Eastern languages and literatures from New York University in 1991 and a second doctorate in theoretical sociology in 1999 at the New School for Social Research. We've been discussing his book, How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom. As I mentioned, this interview was first taped in 2012. We hope to have Professor Berliner Blau back on the program soon to talk about his more recent work. After a short break, our foreign correspondent, Katie Murphy, discusses the difference between being lost and curious in China. We'll be back after this. If you're on Twitter... Please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dolt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And thank you always for listening. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. There's nothing quite so disorienting as trying to live a life in another language. Katie Murphy files this report. I think I'm becoming a terrible person. Is it possible for a place to change you in that way? And if so, is it permanent? I asked the subway policeman why I had to put my bag through the scanner if he was just going to be staring at me the whole time and not the screen. I've had joking conversations with coworkers about jumping the random guy in the same elevator as us, but the man whose fate we were discussing was standing feet away. Normally, such thoughts are reserved for my head, but where I live in China, most people don't speak English. So when I get frustrated, as I often do by the e-bikes honking at me to move when they are the ones driving on the sidewalk, or how people push me out of the way at the supermarket or grab my arm to move around me without a second thought, I'm tempted to express how I feel. It's easy. I can say anything. No one understands. I might look crazy, but I'm alone, a foreigner in China, and I'm never going to see any of these people again. There's more to it. More than me just speaking my mind. I'm more likely to swear aloud, bike like a jerk, cross the street whenever I damn well please, and to yell at taxi drivers when they try to rip me off. Basically, to be less polite. This kind of behavior spills over into the normal frustrations of trying to get home appliances fixed or doing any kind of banking transactions. I've also found myself tempted to litter. Littering is not a pastime of mine. But when everyone else does it, when people don't seem to care about where things go or where one should respectfully go to the bathroom, does it matter? Yes, of course it matters. Yet being in China, so far from my actual home, it almost seems unreal. 
as if everything I'll do or have done here will be unexplainable to anyone else because without the context, the actions don't make sense. It's like I'm existing outside of space and time. We blend into each other. Days are a movie on fast forward. And the hazy snow globe-like effect of the pollution that hangs over the city doesn't help this unmoored feeling. There's a monotony here, but it's a strange sort of monotony. It's uncanny in the Freudian sense of the word, unhome, from German. Things seem familiar. There are cars and people and buildings. I go to work, I go to the gym, I eat food, I go home. But everything is slightly off. Just slightly. Here, foreigners are permitted certain faux pas. We get away with a lot more. We take advantage of this. How this materializes in me is that I basically do what I want. I walk in wherever I want, stand in lines that I know are closing at the grocery store because it's just easier for them to ring me up than to try and explain in a language they know I hardly understand that the line is closed. I walk in front of cars because I know they'll stop or at least slow and swerve around me. Drivers here are accustomed to chaotic pedestrian crossings. And I ignore any semblance of a line and play at every person for themselves, especially for machines at the gym. Courtesy, as an ideal, is gone. A race for my memory. Don't get me wrong, I still hold doors. But here, order in the American way doesn't pay off. I suppose you could euphemistically call this adapting. I want to blame it on a lack of accountability, which is really just another way of saying a lack of ownership. I want to say that because I don't feel I belong here, because this place is so different and the daily tasks far more difficult than what I'm used to, that it makes sense for me to act out in this way. The truth is that because of these inconveniences, I feel entitled to certain behaviors, certain outbursts that would otherwise be inconceivable for me. That entitlement is the issue. It isn't entitlement in the normal way, where I feel as if I deserve things and thusly act as if that is true. It's that, if you spin it on its head. I feel that because nothing works out smoothly here, because others are rude, that my actions are permissible. Combine said entitlement with the uncanny dreamlike everyday experience and the fact that there is no real network here, no real community, at least not for me, to keep one accountable, and what you have is the perfect environment for unconscious action. It's the ideal environment in which to get lost. Or maybe it's the environment the lost seek. Loss is an interesting word. It's romanticized, but only because it's inevitably coupled with being found in some way. Lost on its own is sad. Either the lost don't realize that being found is a choice, or they do and are thusly making the obstinate one. I did that for a period in my life. I was unknowingly and then willfully lost. Now? Well, now I would say I'm curious. There is a distinction, although at times being curious and being lost look one and the same. In both instances, people do terrible, amazing, tragic things to perpetuate the storyline of their lives. The difference is that the curious know they are the author. The things they do might perpetuate a storyline, might be terrible and tragic, although they are often amazing. But they do it knowing they can change their mind knowing that this is a choice. That this choice was their own, and if it doesn't work out, well then, they can make another one. That power lies not necessarily in actions, but in perspective. The way I choose to see the world is the way the world becomes, burdensome or terrifying or steeped in mystery and magic. The choice is mine. That is why unconscious action, unaccountability, is so dangerous. There is nothing to guide me forward except my own thoughts and ideas, which, at times, I must admit, are easily affected by my environment. I'd like to say I'm a strong person, unyielding in my belief of right and wrong, but that'd be a lie. I'm more easily swayed than my ego wants me to say. Everything can become circumstantial, and when put within circumstances that require almost zero accountability, one allows oneself more leeway. In comes conflict, in comes drama, in comes all the things that make a story alive and complex. Maybe that's the beauty of traveling. The ability to see within oneself the dark side. To hear the cacophony, the clashing of ideals and beliefs both about the culture around you and your place within it and within the world at large. It is only with the lens of curiosity that one is able to see these things as interesting, 
rather than as a burden of being put upon by an outside force. With a curious lens, one can take account of the type of person they were, the type of person they've become, and hopefully the type of person they desire to be. And without trying to make them one and the same, acknowledge instead the progression, always making sure that to some degree it's forward or upward or onward. Katie Lynn Murphy is a writer and a traveler. She holds a Master of Fine Arts from Emerson College. Her work has been published in literary journals such as The Normal School. She currently lives in China. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop and somewhere in China. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Jeff Krauss engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Aples, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. 